Aloha Kako. Come, come on in. It's another Aloha Friday conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. So glad you're here. <laughs> we're taking the time today, understanding different communities, and we're going to start in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is one of the hot spots for attacks against Asians that we're hearing so much about. Now, first off, AAPI, it refers to Asian American and Pacific Islanders. The online incident tracker Stop AAPI Hate recorded 2,808 reports across the U.S. since the pandemic began. Over 700 of those incidents were reported in the Bay Area. They involve name-calling, verbal abuse, pushing, shunning. In January, a Thai man was shoved to the ground and died from his injuries in San Francisco. Several elders have been attacked in Oakland, and that is where the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, APEN, does its work. I ran across them as I was trying to get beyond the incident reports to some way forward, and APEN says they work to build resilience in working-class Asian communities. We'll hear from Teresa Siangatonu, touring poet, educator, organizer. She says Bay Area Pacific Islanders are mostly Tongan and Samoan, with some Hawaiians and others. Like Asians, they're mostly essential workers in food, warehouses, airports, health care. They're educators, students. And first off, we're going to hear from Alvina Wong, campaign organizing director for APEN, who says the Asian community in the Bay Area is very diverse. Chinese, yes, with a 200-year history in California, plus Vietnamese, Laotians, Thai, Filipinos, all with diverse needs. I think it's easy to conflate Asian as just East Asian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, when really I think a lot of the violence and crimes that we're seeing and the ones that are getting very uh, a lot of attention are actually happening to our Southeast Asian refugee communities, to Filipino communities, and there's a way that I think the stories are getting woven to push a certain type of narrative, which is to prove that we've been victimized and that we're weak. And I think a lot of these crimes and violence and situations that are happening are crimes of opportunity, really about the economic crisis that we're in right now, where we've seen many, many failures of our government system to actually take care of our people. You really took us a long way, Alvina. You're expanding the problem beyond visual ethnic groups, for one thing. I mean, I really appreciate this question. How are we contextualizing the violence and framing it? Especially like to communicate to your listeners in Hawaii, which is a predominantly, you know, Asian Pacific Islander region that's vastly different from the Bay Area where the Bay Area has a population of black community being in community with Asian folks that is a different experience than on island from my experience being being in Hawaii. For decades, long before Alvina and I were even born, there has been a solidarity um, amongst Asian communities and Black communities in the Bay Area that's deeply rooted in struggle, in collective organizing, in triumph um, and victory <laughs> that oftentimes is not what's being given a platform when we're talking about this current violence. I think it's violent that gentrification has ravaged the Bay Area for decades now and has displaced longtime residents, um, primarily black and brown folks, immigrant communities. If we're only talking about the physical violence we see and not all of the other forms of violence that we don't see, then are we really getting to the root of trying to end the violence rather than just reacting to it? 
Jeez, Teresa, you're, you're pointing out how minority communities do have relationships through economic hardship, as Alvina was, was saying. Because Alvina was in a weird position. I listened to Lerung, who I believe is the head of Stop AAPI Hate, that listing. I heard him describe acts of violence against perceived Chinese as horrific. And I had a really hard time accepting that description of it. How does that grab you? I think that what we have seen in, especially at the beginning of the pandemic and being scapegoated by the previous um, administration as the cause of the pandemic, folks were being yelled at for being Chinese and go home and all these things that are horrific, especially in the Bay Area where we've had some of the longest legacy of Asian American Pacific Islanders immigrants and refugees, like not just decades, but centuries long history here, you were seeing lots of tagging that were like, kill Chinese, go home or F Chinese people. And that just seems so bizarre when we've been living in the community together for multiple generations. I feel like those are horrific moments. And Alvina, I have to really feel what you're saying. Because that word horrific, you know, is applied globally and it has such a deep meaning that in these cases, I guess I don't see the bloodshed. So I don't see Mm -hmm. the numbers. This puts me in a really weird position because I'm measuring and I feel like, oh, well, this isn't half as bad as I don't even want to (laughs) say. Yeah, no. And I, if it helps to reframe a little, I think where I'm at is that it's just heartbreaking and in some ways devastating to know that the place that we've called home for the last 20 plus years, or some of us who are born here, are continuously othered and attacked and verbally or physically harassed just by being who we are. That must be what it felt like only 80 years ago when posters went up saying persons of Japanese ancestry report to authorities. One thing I want to be specific about, and I don't speak on behalf of the entire Pacific Islander community, but I would say that this violence is particularly happening to Asian people, that violence isn't happening to Pacific Islanders as much as people use AAPI hate in the hashtags or in the naming of this. When I see violence done into our communities, of course it's painful, but I have to stay focused on the fact that this pain is global we need to stay focused for the long run to really understand this violence. Otherwise we're gonna keep going tit for tat, putting the onus on black people or putting the onus Mm -hmm. on individuals and things like that. We really need to pull back and really understand the systems of this. What do we do for the long game, Teresa? We have to be able to stay strong and diligent to learning. Past social movements have taught us Mm -hmm. strategies that worked really well when they were fighting these exact same battles during the civil rights movement during the anti-war movement (laughs) and understanding what failed and what didn't work for them and and improving on that and learning from our elders while they're still here. (laughs) And I think the Bay Area does that really well. I think we have a lot of movement history within our communities that we learn from. Mass media is not interested in that. You have to be patient with justice. They wanna hear who are we gonna lock up and and who's gonna be held responsible for this. That's what they wanna hear. But that's another part of the tension right now because a lot of us are trying to move away from alternatives that use arrests and convictions mm-hmm. as, as our answer. We know that those tactics have not ensured safety for a long time. There's an undoing that needs to happen. 
when we talk about environmental justice, we talk a lot about restoring the ecology that has been damaged. And so there's a lot of repair, restoration, reparations that are due to folks who have been hurt and also a big, big investment in something else. This is the time for us to have a different system and a different future forward. And what we can do is invest in, again, healing, deep healing that is really transformative to say, I've done harm. This is what accountability and responsibility to that harm looks like. This is what I need to do to repay and repair. And here are my new commitments moving forward so that I make sure I myself never do it again and no one else in my community does it again. There has to be real deep investment into healing resources and in all of that in the Bay Area, especially, but most major cities, it's like secure housing have real resources to affordable housing, make sure that there's actually opportunities for living wage, meaningful work that people can do so that they can have good quality lives. Make sure that people have access to affordable healthcare, mental healthcare, emotional health, and the healing work that we're talking about, and education. We need to invest in education and not just punishment. And so I think there are, there are definitely real tangible policy shifts we can do, things that look at our city, county, state, or federal budget and how we're using our resources. With you, Teresa, as an artist, where do you go for inspiration of dreaming up the new path? Because somebody's got to paint me the picture of where we're going. I mean, as a poet, I love being an artist and I love languaging a new world, the alternative world, right? And so poets like Maya Angelou, like June Jordan, these are folks that we've lost that are not ancestors to us. James Baldwin spoke so much about the responsibility of an artist. Black liberation has for years been a blueprint that a lot of our communities look for because we have seen black folks during slavery dreaming of freedom in ways that I know my Pacific Islander community has borrowed tactics from. And so Poetry is definitely a, a site of inspiration. People who can visualize and create art that just names the world for what we want it to be and doesn't like second guess whether or not it will get enough votes or whether or not, you know, we can meet in the middle with white supremacists. It's like, no, like we can get to the world we want because there was once a time in which people dreamed of a world with prisons, with police. So let's dream of one without them. <laughs> we can dream of a different world too. You know, are other Asians like yourself, Alvina, in the Bay Area afraid to go out? I think they are afraid to go out, one part in because of COVID and another part because it just feels like everyone's against us right now. All the stories that we're hearing are about getting robbed or mugged or carjacked at gunpoint, which is true. In this moment, those things are happening more often. And it's also happening very highly in Latino and Black neighborhoods as well. In the Bay Area this year, we had 15 gun-related murders in the first month. And all of those were happening in Deep East Oakland and West Oakland, which are predominantly Black neighborhoods. Predominantly Black neighborhoods and Latino neighborhoods also have a very deep mix of Asian immigrant and refugee communities as well. So there is like an overall tenseness that I think our folks are going through right now, just feeling like, I don't know what's gonna happen to me. And also really, I think what I'm hearing a lot is like, I'm really afraid for my aunties and my uncles. I'm really afraid for my grandparents. I'm really afraid for my own parents who are at an elderly age. I think there is a, a moment now that is creating more and more fear. And what we wanna be able to do is create more and more care for each other. 
I think that it is getting worse in some cases because now that there's so much attention into Chinatown, a lot of the crime and violence is getting pushed out into neighboring areas. So I do feel like it's been on the rise consistently and it is still increasing. And in Oakland, the police department has had the biggest budget they've had in the last 10 years and still crimes are on the rise. We've also heard outside of Oakland, police have also been responsible for killing mentally ill Filipino man. So I think we are all on edge because we don't know who to call and who to trust and uh, where to go when we are in need. Alvina Wong, campaign organizing director for the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. They do their work in Oakland and the Bay Area. We also heard from poet, educator, activist, Teresa Siangatono, communities under pressure and suspicion tension between races, maybe long simmering, emerges. But what is race? We'll take a look at that now. A new exhibit at the Bishop Museum represents just the sort of reckoning with the past that Alvina Wong was just calling for. What does accountability look like? Bishop Museum wrestled with that question, and they're offering their exhibit, Regenerations. Dr. Jillian Swift is curator of archaeology at Bishop Museum and co-curator of Regenerations with archive director Leah Caldera and geneticist Keolu Fox of UC San Diego. Dr. Swift says race used to be a field of study, but it just isn't anymore. So genetics actually did a lot to help disprove this idea of race as a construct. There's very, very little genetic variation across people and populations. It's a tiny fraction of our DNA. And then that part that varies doesn't map onto what we know as racial categories. These categories are entirely socially constructed. Um, Now, what are they again? What are the racial categories? (laughs) Is it color of skin? Is it height? Is it body type? Well, all of those things. I guess to answer that, I would want to go back into sort of the history of race and how we even came to understand race. And really, this has origins in early European explorers and naturalist scientists. And they're, of course, going out and cataloging the species that they see. And then there's this idea that, well, can we do this with people? Are we all the same species? Of course, we are. But that is kind of the early part of this discussion. And it sort of expands into this idea that maybe people are different people do look different. So there are physical differences, but really physical variation and genetic variation is along a spectrum. It's not something that you can categorize into neat little boxes. We tend to do this with everything because we're humans and we need to understand things and dealing with chaos is a lot more difficult than than (laughs) dealing with neat little categories. But if those categories aren't real, then that's something we have to reckon with. And that is the case for racial categories how we study human variation today, a lot of that is with genetics, right? And we don't talk about races in that, we talk about populations. That's still not a very discrete entity with clear boundaries because people are messy. (laughs) We've always moved around, we've always mixed. You're pointing out something that people are realizing through 23andMe and everything else. I can say definitively there's no biological reality to race, but of course there is a social reality. We still have these categories. We still think about these categories. These categories have still been used to oppress and displace and 
all manner of atrocities against certain groups of people, right? But the thing is, like, we invented them. They're not biologically real. Once we understand that distinction, we can start to see the social mechanisms that enable race and enable racism. Thank you for putting that clearly. Help me with this part then, these particular artifacts that the Bishop Museum has. What are they? What do they look like? Describe them. The Sullivan Collection, you mean? It's a series of photographs and today they are a tremendous resource that the museum has for genealogical research. In Sullivan's era, anthropology is actually experiencing some pretty major growing pains at this time. Early anthropology really considered itself the study of race. And it's not until Franz Boas, who is often called the, the father of American anthropology, comes along. A few of his contemporaries and his students are transforming this idea of anthropology from the study of race to the study of culture. So this transformation is taking place even as Sullivan's doing his work. I see. We certainly didn't do this exhibit to, to specifically blame or condemn Sullivan. And, you know, people are products of their time. And this is certainly Sullivan and his research being embedded in a much larger history. The idea of eugenics was very big in the U.S. at this time. But I've kind of forgotten what eugenics is. Eugenics is this idea that we can use mechanisms like selective breeding to improve populations. I've read the Sullivan file that we have at the museum, and it's very clear that he does think that he's doing a good thing for everyone by promoting this idea of eugenics. We can improve people. We can take the best out of everybody. And of course, the other side of that coin is eliminate the worst. Sullivan and his contemporaries in anthropology turn these false ideas of race into a science and lend these constructions a new air of scientific credibility by deciding that we can take measurements and use objective scientific measurement to categorize and classify the physical characteristics of each race. All of this is now discredited, I have to stress. All of this is building a scientific endeavor onto a false premise. And so, you know, the thing about science is that it self-corrects over time. But the problem is uh, popular imagination, political imagination, all of these things are slower to take that in and slower to change. Right. So Sullivan was actually working for the American Museum of Natural History in New York under Henry Osborne. He was invited oh. to the Bishop Museum to come to the museum under a joint appointment. And so he was invited to be part of the Bayard Dominic expeditions. This was a much larger anthropological expedition that the museum was undertaking. There was this idea at the time, which is to solve the problem of Polynesian origins. And of course, there are also kind of racially charged assumptions happening there as well. The Hawaii studies were never published, but the collection was taken to be uh, in, displayed in an exhibit in conjunction with the Second International Congress on Eugenics, which was presided over by the AMNH director, Osborne. We're talking about changes you know, that, that have been taking place in anthropology. Tell me about the changes that had to take place at Bishop Museum in between then and now. I think this exhibit is, is a pretty big transformation in how we view this collection and how we 
will continue to curate the collection. The collection really is, is under the purview of my co-curator, Leia Caldera. But one of the things that's happening that I think is really amazing is everything we've collected, all of the archival research, all of the stories that we've collected from the descendants that we've been working with, all of the interviews that we've recorded with the descendants, all of that is now going to be archived as part of the collection. We wanted to be very honest about the origins of the collection. We didn't want to shy away from our responsibilities in that. We also wanted to make sure that that aspect of the story could be drawn into present day, that these issues haven't gone away, that they manifest in, in new ways now. But ultimately, the thing that is most important to us is the way that this collection has transformed. And that transformation has been led by community members, by taking the collection out, by being able to share this outside of the museum walls and having especially Native Hawaiian descendants who are doing their own research and making connections with their family members. That is what is leading this transformation. And we wanted to celebrate that first and foremost and to offer a space for them to share their stories with us. Dr. Jillian Swift is archeology span curator at Bishop Museum and co-curator of Regenerations. So a good number of thoughtful people in that exhibit last weekend. Time well spent. Bishop Museum is open every day, by the way. Mahalo to the Ohana Kaokai from Puna, Hawaii Island, with Ohana Kaleohano and Wentworth, and the Ohana Ho'olapa from Kona, along with the Ohana Duvo Shell from Puko'o Molokai, and the Ohana Akona from Koloa Kauai. By contributing their stories, these families have generously helped transform one of Hawaii's cherished institutions. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Energy, committed to helping businesses reduce energy use during the pandemic. Its Energy Advantage program offers LED lighting upgrades for small businesses. HawaiiEnergy.com slash Energy Advantage. Join HPR Saturday, March 6th for a virtual concert with Sean Pimental and friends. It's an evening of traditional and contemporary Hawaiian music from one of the state's most accomplished music producers. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton Studio in your own living room. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamram Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org. This is the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa, so glad you're here. We've been talking about race this morning, and representation's a big part of that. Hawaii and Native Hawaiians in particular have a history of fraught relations with how we've been represented in the media. Director Jude Wang and the cast and crew of Finding Ohana were prepared when they came. 
Finding Ohana led the top ten on Netflix the weekend it debuted. And if you haven't seen it yet, the film opens with this kind of casino royale for kids kind of geocaching sequence in Brooklyn. It's a lot of fun. Then it plops the main characters in Hawaii where a treasure hunt unfolds to save Grandpa's Aina. After lava pits, crashing boulders, and night marchers, the main character, Peely, makes a very woke decision. <laughs> we had a chance to catch up with Peely, local girl Kea Peahu recently. She's 13 now. She started appearing on YouTube several years ago with her sister. She is a standout dancer. And Kea says, finding Ohana is like a pole vault for her career. Yeah, so this was the biggest role that I had ever auditioned for. So going into it, I was extremely nervous. I remember like I was not even nervous about like memorizing the lines, but it was something that I really, really wanted to book the role of. Every actress or actor, like when they go and audition, they want to make sure like they give their best out because, you know, sometimes you only literally have like one chance to do it. So when I got there, I actually, all of my nerves went away because Leslie Wu, the, the amazing casting director, she was super sweet. We got to like talk story before I even started auditioning. Every time I went back, I got more and more comfortable, like when I did callbacks. And from the moment I got the script, I already knew it was a character that I wanted to play the role of. And I think it wasn't really hard switching myself into that character of Peely because I feel like we're not really different. We're really similar in a lot of ways. And so I think like everything from the people to the experience, like where it was filmed at, it was all just like, it made me feel super comfortable. <laughs> well, where was it filmed? <laughs> So it was filmed for five weeks in Hawaii, on Oahu, and then six weeks in Thailand, and then one week in Brooklyn, New York. It's all in like these few scenes, but what people don't realize is they're all like different locations. So like Hawaii, we filmed like most of the like outside stuff, like the outside of the cave scenes, because obviously the caves are kapu, so we couldn't physically go inside of them. And then Thailand, that's where we filmed like all of the stuff in the caves. Another part of it was just like handmade sets and then Brooklyn, that was all like the geocaching stuff, obviously the stuff that's actually in And What did you experience in terms of trying to keep the whole production pono, you know? Yeah, I think the casting crew were really, it was really important for them to make sure that like we were representing Hawaii for something that it actually is because obviously like it's not a secret, like some movies and TV shows can get like bashed because they're not really representing Hawaii for something that it is. But I think with this movie, I mean, we really made sure, I don't, um, I forgot what the word is, but like Jude had a bunch of people like make sure like professionals that we were like doing everything properly from like the language to like where it was filmed. And we really wanted to make sure that we were like representing it for something that it actually is that way. It's not like getting misrepresented or anything. Yeah. You know, because there will always be detractors, and there have been, you know, for how certain aspects might be portrayed. Well, how do you respond yeah. to that? To be honest, I feel like some people, like, might not understand. I think everyone, when they look forward to a movie, I feel like they all have different point of views. To be honest, I feel like people enjoy it in different type of ways, like, depending on what kind of movies they like. Like, some people might really enjoy this movie if they're adventurous people, and then, like, on the Native Hawaiian side of things, and then, like, on like the Hispanic side of things, I think everyone has like a different point of view when they watch this movie. <laughs> what was it like really working with Ioane? I love Alex so much. I mean, because, <laughs> Alex Ayono, I mean, yeah. I mean, he's literally like my brother. We still keep in contact. Like, you folks really, really did kind of seem to come together as a family. <laughs> yeah, us as characters, Anna, Ioane, Casper, and Pili, they all connected. But that was also us connecting like as 
people in real life, like in reality, we were all getting closer and closer. And I feel like that made everything like so much easier. Okay. I mean, what is your Ohana like here? I have so much family in Hawaii. I can't even tell you who my actual cousins are because I don't even know who my actual cousins are. I feel like everyone's like my auntie, my uncle, my cousins. Were you born here? Yes. Hawaii. I feel like that really, that really started up it like all growing up I was a dancer but I never really acted and then my mom heard on the radio station about an acting event and she took me to it because you know why not and that's when I realized my passion and if it wasn't for that then all of this would have happened and obviously all the sacrifices that she made and you know people were telling us like it's hard if you really wanted to be like be an actress but then obviously there's a lot more opportunities in LA so even though I'm like in LA with like most of my opportunities I feel like back home like Hawaii is always like my home it's always somewhere I could go back to and I, I'm actually here right now I actually just flew in today so I'm actually here in Hawaii and it's it's great I mean I get to always like see my family and it obviously during this pandemic we have to stay safe but I mean yeah I feel like I definitely get to like connect with all of them. What's ahead for you, Kea? Well, I'm really, really hoping for a Finding Ohana 2, maybe even a Finding Ohana 3. And besides that, I'm just trying to stay safe right now. Could you see yourself like female action film type of, you know, what kind of roles really can you imagine for yourself, Kea? I'm open for any kind of role. Another thing I want to be in, like as much as I enjoy like adventurous movies, I really want to try to be in a horror film, like a scary film. I really one day. <laughs> Actor Kea in a horror flick, vampires maybe. For now, Finding Ohana is streaming on Netflix. Locals quibble like, you know, what's with the bats and spiders? They should have been fighting giant centipedes and fire ants. But uh, people generally agree that it is the only place you're going to hear Garen's Ball Barons on TV right now. <laughs> got another terrific teenager to introduce you to, but let's make a quick stop at a gallery first. We'll pop over to the Downtown Arts Center for a show called Something Fishy. 30 invited artists are showing paintings, ceramic sculpture on a vaguely nautical theme. Ceramic artist Constance Liu was there. She makes intricately carved porcelain bowls. And printmaker Stephen Keen was there, too. You see his prints at Polu Surf Art Gallery in Haleiwa. Keen is a surfer. In his prints, the individual marks of the carving tool are like facets of the waves. Working as an artist, that's, you know, something I dreamt of in high school. And now to actually, you know, make a living out of it, but still be, you know, part of the teaching field and, you know, educating the kids is it's fulfilling. Especially with the art now, the kids really need it, you know. And the Art Bento program is all about responding to artwork. So the goal is to get the kids more comfortable with talking about artwork and voicing their opinions about it. So, you know, you respond with your thoughts with your words, and then with art making. You know, a lot of people honestly don't know how to respond to art, what to say or what to look for. Well, it's, yeah, it can be uncomfortable for some people because like, oh, is this right or wrong what I'm saying? And that's the thing that we... Uh, how do you battle that? Well, you first by start by saying there is no right or wrong answer. Your response is, is of value. Everybody has their own unique thought. So 
with the art bento, that's what we try to ingrain in the kids is your thoughts, that's, that's all you. And, you know, nobody can tell you that's right or wrong, especially with the, it's not like a math problem, you know, where two times two is four. With art, there's so many different interpretations you can have. And I think that's the beauty of it. Teaching artist Stephen King. Yes, actually teaching how to talk with each other about what we think. You can practice at the Downtown Art Center. 30 artists, fun range of spiky, challenging things, all the way to, you know, just flat-out exuberance. The DAC is open Wednesdays through Sundays, 11 to 6 p.m. in Chinatown Gateway, right above the new Satellite City Hall. Learning to talk with each other is a key for the organizers we heard in the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. It's also a goal of the Just Futures Youth Conference set for tomorrow, Saturday, here in Hawaii. Just Futures is a three-hour capsule event for youth, a part of which will use the philosophy for children model of Socratic discussion. I mean, that's a method for encouraging response in a non-judgmental environment. I mean, how rare is that today? Please, meet Peyton Gillespie, a senior at Maui Preparatory Academy. He's been working hard on tomorrow's summit. My name is Peyton Gillespie. I'm a senior at Maui Preparatory Academy on West Maui. I am currently doing my internship on civic education and participation in the political process. So I reached out to Representative Amy Peruso of the Civic Education Council because I was interested in this topic, and I know she does a lot of work surrounding the issue, and asked her if I could partner with her on her biggest project, which is the Just Futures Youth Summit, coming up. I see. Okay. You know, before I leave this, though, where do you live, Peyton? Currently in the Pili on West Maui. I'm actually rooming with one of my teachers, the Performing Arts Director at Maui Prep. She's a lovely woman, and she uh, let me homestay with her. Our boarding program closed down last year, so obviously due to COVID, so I'm finishing up my senior year living with her. <gasps> my home is on Molokai with my mother, and my grandparents live there as well, so I get to pop back and forth between the two worlds. Right. Where on Molokai are you from? We are from sort of the eastern end. It's a place called Kavela. It's really hot. Um, it's probably five to ten miles uh, east of Kanakakai, which is the biggest town in Molokai, more in the center of the island. Mm-hmm. Rural, Very of course. Rural. <laughs> it's, a, it's a small island, but it is the friendly isle. When I moved there six years ago, I was really met with one big island, Ohana, and it's, it's really interesting. It's different from the mainland I came from. I was born in Oregon, then I moved to Utah and then Nevada, and then I came to Molokai with my mom, where my grandparents have been for 12 plus years. It's a really, really friendly island, full of family. There are 7,000 people. It's really small. Our house is real spaced out from everyone else. It's real natural social distancing. But you get to know everybody really well on the island, and you have sort of the coconut wireless per se. So it's like, I couldn't do something at school because by the time I get home, my mom would know about it already through the grapevine. So it's a wonderful island, and so is Maui. I love, I love being able to have the opportunity to switch between the two. It's really like living in two different worlds, so it's great. If you don't mind my asking, why did you move to Molokai? To Molokai, good question. So my mom was working with the Bureau of Land Management for 25 years. 
she raised me on her own since she was since I was three years old. My parents divorced when I was three, and my mom and I have lived together since then, away from family. So it's just been the two of us. And at that point in my life, I was in sixth grade, and we were ready to make a change and move closer to family. Were you living primarily near Native American reservations or something? Yes, we were, especially in Nevada. Not so much in Oregon, but definitely in Utah for sure. Definitely in Nevada. The Shoshone Native Americans were some of my closest friends, and I spent a lot of nights on the reservations there and really built up close connections uh, with the families on the reservation. So they certainly have a special place in my heart. Just interested in the different ways that you shared experiences. So that's Absolutely. pretty cool. Yeah, it's been, my life has been that of a vagabond. Somehow you've managed to drop into places and settle in a little bit. I have. No, it's not. You learn to do so after. I'm on my seventh school now because of my mom's job and because we've moved so much on my fourth state. um, You learn to adapt to new communities and be resilient and find ways to fit in. Before we leave that though, Peyton, what are some keys to that? Some keys to fitting in? Well, I honestly don't think I found the true key until I moved to Molokai. Um, It was really different when I first moved there. It was the first time in my life where I, as a Caucasian, was a minority. The island is over 80% indigenous peoples, and I was surrounded by this really, really unfamiliar culture. Um, And so I had to find new ways to fit in. And I remember the first time when I stepped on a, a local public bus, I think the first week of school, one of my friends addressed the bus driver as uncle. He said, hey, uncle, how's it going? And I said, I said, is that, are you related? And they laughed and said, no, no. In Hawaii, we treat our elders uh, with respect by calling them auntie or uncle, uh, regardless of blood relation. And that, that was when I think I found the true key of fitting in is you treat your community as you would treat your family, uh, especially living on Molokai on an island of 7,000 people. Again, it's really one big ohana. Um, and so that's definitely the key to fitting in and just being, being optimistic and being yourself and eventually uh, the right people will come to you and you'll, you'll find your place in, in any community. I bet some of the people coming to this conference, Just Futures Conference, are looking for community, right? They're looking for other people who want to pitch their energies toward creating a better future for, for the whole community. Tell me about the conference. What would you, how would you like to start telling me about it? <laughs> We've been planning it for a couple months here now. It's actually been, the idea has been in the making for probably close to a year. The idea of the Just Futures Youth Summit is to give students that sense of community and that sense more so of comfort in talking to each other about modern issues or modern political issues. I think we've seen a stagnation, especially in the last one or two to three years of talking about political issues. You see, like you'll go to friends' houses and they'll say, oh, politics, we don't talk about that at the dinner table. That's, we don't bring that to the dinner table or it's difficult for friends with opposing views to talk to each other. Um, And that sense of community is going to be a really, really important theme at the conference because we want students to be comfortable having those conversations with their family, with their friends, with their peers, uh, and with even strangers in their community, regardless of what your views are. We're going to talk about issues like lowering the voting age to 16, like free education, like response to the pandemic. We hope that students will come out of the conference with inspiration for the youth voice, the first part of the conference. We hope that they'll come out of it with confidence and skill with regard to verbalizing issues and things that they think are important in their community, no matter what side they're on and no matter who they're talking to. And finally, we hope they understand better ways to contact legislators or even just how the legislative process works. May I say, Peyton, there's been something of a lack of student voice 
in civic discussion. Do you really think <laughs> there's energy and motivation for students to get what's in it for them? Good question. I think civic education is less of an important topic today, and it's certainly not held to the same standard as subjects like math, history, and science in all schools around the country. And that is unfortunate, and that is certainly why we are doing this conference, is because you know, there's a part of civic education that's in the classroom and you're sitting at the desk and the teachers, you know, talking at you about democracy. But I think what we're lacking most is the civic part of it, which is the involvement. And that's being taken to voting booths. That's being taken to do required community service hours in your community. Some schools have required community service linked to their civic education classes in order to graduate. And so this conference is to inspire students to get involved and to do that physical aspect of getting involved in their community, of being a part of their community, of being a citizen. What they will gain out of the conference is, again, that confidence and that ability to, to talk to students. And to a certain extent, they'll gain a network. I mean, they're going to meet kids from around the state. They're going to meet legislators. You know, there are very rare opportunities where you have the chance to talk with state legislators one-on-one. -on -one. Youth may still register for the Just Futures Youth Conference. Go to civiceducationcouncil.org. The conference runs from 2 to 5 p.m. tomorrow, Saturday, online across the state. And we will post the link with this story. And thanks, Peyton Gillespie, co-organizer, for telling us about it. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. On the next Science Friday, we look at Oregon's efforts to roll back drug laws. How did this happen and how may it impact healthcare workers? I would work myself out of a job any day. I would love to like run around with a magic wand and cure everyone's substance use disorders by tapping them on the forehead. That's not realistic. Join us on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at one. Did you miss the latest edition of The Conversation or Fresh Air? Sometimes you just can't listen to your favorite show when it airs on HPR, but you can listen to it on demand with our free mobile app for your iPhone, iPad, or Android. It even integrates with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, so you can listen hands-free in your car. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. We've been talking about talking with each other. That is what Ka'ala Elementary School counselor John Morikawa does. He was recently recognized as the 2021 American School Counselor Association's Hawaii School Counselor of the Year. Morikawa lives in Mililani, but he spent his career in Wahiawa. So I asked him what it's like there at Ka'ala L there on California Avenue. Yeah, we have about 450 kids around there every year. It's a pretty uh, small enough school. It's good that we, we get to know a lot of the kids and the parents, yeah, so. What do the parents do? Well, 
there's some parents that you know are are working and then some that need some assistance yeah so that's the kind of population we work with but like 85 percent would qualify for like free and reduced lunch what are the kids lives like at home very humble places that they come from you know a lot of times they live in a small apartments but you know they make it work and they have like maybe a couple bedrooms but they have quite a few kids and so we got a variety but most of our students are from the lower income bracket but it's great working with these uh students and these families that have a real good time working with them you know why well, it's just, you know, it's just a passion. It's a calling, you know, I mean, and then we have good people at Kaala. They go above and beyond their roles. You know, they go out, they meet the families, they care for their kids in the class and outside of class, you know. So we got a good culture here. Like, in fact, everywhere I worked in Wahio has always been good people that I've been working with. So I've been, I've been lucky. And then, you know, my first years of, of teaching, I was at that storefront school. I don't know if you know about that. It's an alter- yeah. alternative learning center in Wahiwa, mainly for the high school students in the central district. Yeah. You know, that kind of established my, my way, established the foundation of, of my belief in, in education. Yeah. Which is what, 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 what's that? Well, like you never give up on a child. You always work with them. Sometimes they might be knuckleheads, but you just build relationships with the kids. And then once you, you get their trust, then they'll be willing to work with you, you know, so. Yeah, it's kind of easier to see what you're saying, working like on a high school level. Like now you're working with the elementary school guys. Yeah. How has it been the last year? <laughs> it's been a learning experience for everybody. You know, for the kids, I give them credit because a lot, you know, in the beginning, they were all at home with a computer. Even like the kindergartners, we're giving them devices, hotspots, so that they can be successful, yeah. For our kids, you know, because they live in such tight quarters, a lot of times I'm doing my classroom and my sister and my brother are sitting right next to me doing their classroom. So a lot of times you can hear the distractions in the back. It's been a challenge, but... uh, for the most part, the, the teachers have found a way to make it work. So give them a lot of credit. So I do the SEL, yeah, social emotional learning with the students. It's all about, you know, how you guys are feeling, managing your emotions. Tell me how you feel, you know. And so a lot of times they'll chat in the box, yeah. If it's like personal stuff, then I'll use Google Forms and ask them questions. And they'll fill it out. They'll tell me, you know, how they feel as best they can. Are they pretty able to do that? You're talking to third to fifth graders right. now in yeah. online one-on-one chat, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm pretty impressed with some of their answers that they give. And one of the good things about it is, you know, when you're in a classroom, you, you ask for a response, maybe one or two students will answer. Right now, what I'm finding through the chat box, more students are willing to answer. So that's one good thing I've, I've learned out of distance learning. There's been like uh, some national information about student depression. Do you see that at all? One of the things that we're trying to impress upon with the teachers is, you know what, it's a, right now it's about building relationships. Our thing is thriving with options and opportunity. That's our model for our school. But what is thriving? Thriving doesn't necessarily just mean good grades or you're going to achieve this much. Uh, thriving is, hey, you come to school every day, you're connecting with an adult, you are doing your best, that's thriving because not everybody's gonna go to college, but there's a lot of people that are successful because they've learned the skills in school to connect with people, to do their best. Even though you get frustrated a lot of times, you keep on doing and that, and that's what we're trying to teach our kids, yeah. What 
do kids who went through your like Ka'ala Elementary become? I know when, when I was at Lelihuat, you know, there's a lot of success stories. Yeah, like guys that, that were kind of knuckleheads in high school, but they, you know, they graduated, you know, and then I had a student that uh, became a painter and he said, you know, he says, oh, thank you, Mr. Morikawa for always being there for me. You know, um, my plan is now is I want to buy a house. I have a wife and I have a kid, so I'm almost a foreman. You know, th those are the kind of stuff that, you know, you, you just kept on working with them and then they they come out successful, you know? Yeah. It must be so rewarding. I, I was just going to say, we may not get paid the best money-wise, but, you know, you see a kid graduate that you worked with, you poured your heart and soul into them and they graduate and you see them, you know, walking down. That's a paycheck. That's the biggest paycheck anybody can have. You know, they become successful in life. And that's your paycheck as a teacher, as a counselor, you know, anybody in education, the EAs and custodians, everybody has to do the work for the students. You know, it, it takes the, everybody to make the kids successful. But when you see them graduate or getting promoted to the middle school or what have you, you know, <laughs> it's so rewarding, you know. Yeah, you can't pay me enough for that feeling that we get. <laughs> Ka'ala Elementary School Counselor, John Morikawa, Hawaii School Counselor of the Year. Heartfelt mahalo to teachers, counselors, school administrators, staff, public and private, charter and at home, Imuakako. And all right, hey, class of 2021, you're getting graduation ceremonies this year. Good for you. I know you probably have senioritis right now, but stay focused, guys. Your success is important to all of us. We started out the show in Oakland, saw a legacy of communities banding together over living conditions and education, and we're closing in Wahiawa. Maybe some kids from Lelehua are going to the youth conference tomorrow. Conference has got a great name, Just Futures. Slat Key by Cindy Combs from the Garden Island. And that pretty much wraps it up for this Aloha Friday. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And be sure to let us know what you're thinking, Kay. Got a story public radio listeners might like? Call the Talkback line. Yeah, do that. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or go ahead and comment on your favorite social media site. Be sure to visit the conversation page on the HPR website. Aloha Friday is a kako thing. Percussionist and vibes player Noel Okimoto's music with Rhythm Summit and Pacific Harp projects woven throughout this show. Our theme is courtesy of Gypsy 808. The conversations produced by Lillian Zong, Jason Ubai, Russell Subiono, and Savannah Harriman Pote. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Be sure to join us Monday when Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation. Until then, let's take care of each other. And be sure to have a happy Aloha Friday. Thank you.